0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 5, really to to get into Daniel chapter 5, we kind of got to kind of take a a look back into Daniel chapter 4. And uh, the events in chapter 4, as you recall, a couple weeks ago, um, Nebuchadnezzar had received this dream, and uh, it was a dream of this great big tree, and uh, it got cut down. And uh, there was a stump left in the field, and and it it really bothered him, this dream. And so he was looking for an interpretation. None of the uh, wise men of Babylon could, could give him the the interpretation. Uh, So he turned to Daniel, and Daniel provided the interpretation. The interpretation was that that tree itself was Nebuchadnezzar, and yet that great tree would be cut down. Nebuchadnezzar would be cut down. He would be removed from his throne. He would live like a wild beast for seven years until he acknowledged God, and that stump in the field was, was, uh, was meant that his throne would be restored to him as soon as he acknowledged who God was and acknowledged in humility God's uh, uh, authority in life and over his life. And uh, so anyways, that was the dream and that was the interpretation. Nothing happened for a year. A year later, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his heart in pride. He looked at the whole city of Babylon and he said, look at the city that I've built. And at that very moment... As the words were leaving his mouth, a voice from heaven said, Okay, it's done. And at that point, God reduced Nebuchadnezzar to a beast, and he lived that way for seven years. He was struck by a psychological condition where a person thinks he's an animal and acts like an animal. Apparently, there have been actual, actual cases of that in, since this thing that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Well, at the end of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says, came to his senses and in humility he acknowledged God and when he did that his kingdom was restored to Nebuchadnezzar and chapter 4 is a is Nebuchadnezzar basically giving his testimony it's an edict that he's or not an edict but it's a declaration of how God did this in his life and uh from all that we can tell from that point on, Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man. And uh, he worshipped and acknowledged the God of Israel. And it seemed that Nebuchadnezzar, from that point on, had learned his lesson. But the lesson learned by one man is still to be learned by another, as we see here in chapter 5. Rather than learning uh, from the history of others, people tend to ignore uh, history and as a result, of course, like the saying goes, you know, those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 5. So chapter 5 opens up with a new king who's on the throne of Babylon, and his name is Belshazzar. Now, who is Belshazzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, back in chapter 4, he died in 562 BC, and his son, who's named Evil merodach I don't mean he was like an evil guy, but that was his name. Uh, he was also, uh, also was uh, Amel marduk He succeeded Nebuchadnezzar, and he ruled Babylon for two years. And then he was assassinated by a guy by the name of uh, Ner- Neriglessar. And he happened to be Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. I wish they had normal names like Nick and Larry and, you know, Bob and stuff. Always tough. Uh, Well, anyways, Neriglasar reigned for four years, and then he died, and he was replaced by his young son, who was just very young at that age, uh, Lavarasharad, we'll just call him Larry. Um, Larry. Uh, It's also Labashi Marduk. Labashi Marduk, or Larry as we'll call him, he reigned for nine months, and he was beaten to death by a group of conspirators who placed Nabonidus on the throne. And Nabonidus reigned on the throne from five fifty-six to five thirty-nine BC. Three years into his reign, Nabonidus left the city of Babylon, and he appointed his son Belshazzar to be a co-regent, kind of like a co-king with him. And so Belshazzar was in control of the army and the government of Babylon. Now the Bible skeptics, they looked at Daniel chapter, you know, Daniel basically in chapter five, and they go, Well, aha. This book, Daniel, is not a historical, authentic book because there's no records of a guy by the name of Belshazzar. And so for many years, they basically said that Daniel couldn't have been an accurate book. Well, that was until 1853, a little while ago now. But in 1853, uh, some archaeologists dug up something called the Nabonidus Cylinder. And on this cylinder are words that Nabonidus himself Inscribed, and it's discovered on that cylinder that he mentions Belshazzar, his firstborn and favorite son. So, archaeology proved the Bible right. If the Bible's accurate, of course, it's God's Word, it's accurate. Um, but uh, anyway, so it all came out, and so we know that uh, Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son. So anyways, when does chapter 5 take place? Because it's a little bit out of order here, because uh, Daniel is, uh, Daniel 6 talks about uh, under the, uh, his uh, time during the reign of the Medes and the Persians, which happened after the fall of, of uh, Babylon. And then going back through the rest of the chapters of the finishing up Daniel, Daniel is going to start giving, receiving more visions of the future while he was still in Babylon, while... You know, uh, I don't know if it was Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar was on the throne at that time. So chapter 5, in any event, is a little bit out of sequence. What took place during chapter 5? Well, the Medes and the Persians were becoming the next world empire. And uh, by this time, most if not all of the land belonging to the Babylonian empire had been captured by the Medes and the Persians. They had conquered it. And the only obstacle really in their way at this point to world domination was the overthrow of the city of Babylon. And so the armies of the Medes and the Persians, when we start reading chapter 5, they had surrounded the city of Babylon. And uh, so the Greek historian, Herodotus, he described the city of Babylon. And uh, based on his description, it was a square city. It was approximately, it covered approximately 225 square miles. So it was huge. Uh, And the entire city was walled in. Each side of this square was 15 miles long. The walls themselves, according to Herodotus, were 300 feet high above the ground, and they extended 35 feet below the ground so that people couldn't dig in under the walls. Uh, And the walls themselves were 80 feet wide, which he says it was wide enough for four chariots to ride abreast on the top of this wall. So you get get kind of a scope of the size of these walls. In addition to the walls, there was a moat between the wall and a quarter mile of open space uh, between that outer wall, and then there was a system of inner walls in the city. This outer wall had guard rooms, it had 250 watchtowers, and the towers themselves stood 100 feet above the walls themselves. I mean, it was just impressive. And there was 100 brass gates. In addition to that, the Euphrates River Flowed right through the center of the city, and they had drawbridges that would they would they would raise them at night. The banks of the river was walled, and uh, it had brass gates to prevent the enemy from attacking via boats in the river. So there was no way that an enemy could float down the river or float you know upstream or I guess they'd float downstream uh, and and get into the river, get into the city through the river because of these walls along the bank of the river. Now that was Herodotus' description of Babylon. They've since then dug up ancient Babylon, the city of Babylon. And uh, recent excavations seem to show that Herodotus slightly exaggerated the size of the city. It's not quite as big as he described, but it was nonetheless an architectural wonder of the ancient world. And for the Babylonians, it was considered impregnable. They weren't worried. In fact, they were set up inside the city to withstand a, a siege of twenty years—that's that's how much they 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 were like they're prepared. There was no way the enemy could get in, so they felt very confident. So, chapter five opens up with the with the Medes and the Persians surrounding the city of Babylon. And let's look at it. Verse one: Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. So here there's this army all surrounding the city of Babylon. And Belshazzar, of course, wanting to appear uh, strong to his subjects. Uh, you know, he didn't want the people in the city to panic because the armies were all around. Because, hey, we're in this impregnable city. There's no way they're going to get in. And probably in his pride, he did figure there's no way that the Medes and the Persians are going are to make it in here. We'll, we'll survive this. Verse 2. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and he had taken all the gold vessels, all the cups, all the stuff that was used in the ministry and the worship of God in the temple, and he had put them in the temple of his God. But... In a blasphemous show of pride here, something that Nebuchadnezzar never did, Belshazzar orders the gold and the silver cups used in the worship of God in the temple to be brought into his presence. And he and his lords, a thousand of them, their wives and their concubines, they basically have a drunken party using these holy vessels. And it's a show of defiance towards God and in worship of the false gods of Babylon. Babylon. Now, I don't know if you ever heard that phrase, "the writing is on the wall." You know, that's a phrase we, we kind of use nowadays. I think it probably comes from this. Look at verse five. In the same hour, and so this wall, this big is going. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. So if you get this picture in the din of smoke, because I got candles and whatever going on in there, the sounds of a wild party in full swing, and because of the fact that there were concubines and wives in there, you can kind of guess it was, you know, there was a lot of other stuff going on in this drunken party. All of a sudden a hand appears out of nowhere and a finger starts writing, on a wall there and Belshazzar sees it and the King James version says the joints of his loins were loosed that's a very descriptive term I've got a, a book here written by Chuck Missler and he has an interesting illustration that kind of tells you kind of gives you a picture of what the joints of his loins being loosened is it says here there's a story told about Lord Nelson the fabled admiral of the British admiralty He was in his cabin one day when the midshipman came in and announced, Lord Nelson, sir, there is a Spanish galleon off the starboard bow. Lord Nelson responded, sound general quarters and get me my red waistcoat. Lord Nelson put on his red waistcoat, engaged his adversary, and succeeded in sinking the enemy ship. A few days later, the midshipman again announced, Lord Nelson, sir, there are two Spanish galleons off the port quarter. Lord Nelson again responded, sound general quarters and get me my red waistcoat. Again, he put on his red waistcoat, engaged the enemy, and ultimately sank the two Spanish galleons. The next day, the midshipman entered Lord Nelson's cabin and asked, Sir, I request permission to ask a question. Granted, that's the way you learn, son. What's your question? Lord Nelson acquiesced. "'I notice that each time we go into a battle, "'you always put on your red waistcoat. "'Why is that, sir?' the midshipman asked. "'Good question, son. "'I always wear my red waistcoat during battle stations "'in case I personally should sustain a hit. "'I don't want my crew to be distracted or demoralized "'by seeing any of my blood spilled during the engagement,' "'the famous admiralty patiently explained.'" A few days later, the midshipman announced, Lord Nelson, Lord Nelson, the entire Spanish armada is on the horizon. Lord Nelson responded, sound general quarters and get me my brown britches. (laughs) Gives you a little bit of illustration, a little bit of understanding of what the joints of his loins were loosened. It it just it shook him to the core, literally. You know what's interesting about that? Isaiah the prophet, 150, year, 150 years earlier, prophesied that that would exact that exact thing would take place. Listen to this: Isaiah 45 verse one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gate shall not be shut. Isaiah the prophesied that uh, his loins would be loosened. And that's exactly what happened here. Verse 7. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a, have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Does that sound familiar to you? Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing when he was confronted with things that just totally freaked him out and he didn't understand what was going on. He was looking for an answer. The reason why I bring that up in that re, in that way is because today there's a lot of stuff going on in the world today that people that don't know the Bible, that people that are they 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 just they just underst- don't understand scriptures. It's beyond human explanation people are perplexed people are frightened right now I mean we have people you know we have these school shootings that are happening in our country and people say what happened how you know also now there's these massacres going on in our in our schools and, and it's younger and younger and younger children that are killing other children and it, it perplexes people uh, right now recently you know the seemingly to those who don't know scriptures the senseless and barbaric slaughter of innocent people in the path of ISIS, they go, it's just—it's beyond comprehension. All the natural catastrophes that are taking place in the in the world around us—all these things, you know—they leave people that don't know scriptures bewildered, frightened. They're scratching their heads. They're trying to make sense of it. What's going on? And you and I, you and I, who are children of God and students of Scripture we can make sense of it in light of Scripture. We, we we understand. We understand what's going to take place. Why? Because God's revealed it to us in Scripture. Not only that, but we understand why it's taken place. God tells us why these things are taking place. So, so you know, you and I are in a position now as believers. The world is starting to look at all the things. And it, it's, you know, you look at how many movies have come out in the last 10 years or so about a ap- 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 Apocalyptic events, you know. There's a lot of movies out there. People are people are starting to, you know, they're they're waking up and going, "Wow, these things are happening." You and I have the answers. Well, Belshazzar was looking for answers. He was perplexed, and uh, so he turned to his magicians and his magi and and the wise men of Babylon, and they couldn't provide an answer. Verse eight. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. So, you know, that pretty much ruined the party uh, at that point, you know. Uh, At this point, the king and all his lords are just like, okay, I think the party's over, basically. Verse 10. The Queen <clears throat> excuse me, the Queen, because of the words of the King and his Lords, came to the banquet hall. The Queen spoke, saying, "O King, live forever, do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the Spirit of the Holy God, and in the days of your Father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the King, made him the chief." "...of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." So this queen, she heard the news, obviously it probably went like wildfire throughout the city of Babylon. What was taking place in that hall... And uh, she starts speaking to Belshazzar about this guy named Daniel, Belshazzar. Now, who was the queen? It wasn't, I don't think it was Belshazzar's wife because it says that the wives and the concubines were in there partying it up. This could have possibly been Nabonidus' wife, his mother, or it could have even possibly been Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who was maybe possibly still alive at this time. Anyways... Whoever this person was, this queen was, she remembered Daniel. And she goes to Belshazzar and she starts reminding him or telling him about Daniel. Verse 13, Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who was one of the captains from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you. That light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the king. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now Belshazzar had probably heard of Daniel, but he had ignored Daniel. In fact, Daniel had probably been ignored in Babylon since the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel had become friends, and it probably about twenty years had elapsed since Nebuchadnezzar had died by the time this takes place, this story. And so Daniel, you remember he was brought into into uh babylon as a young man um we don't know his exact age but possibly around 18 years old or so or even younger um so daniel is probably well into his 80s or even his 90s at this time and for 20 years he's been kind of off the scene nobody's been consulting in him nobody's been like you know daniel can you share something from the lord with me And yet, for all this time, Daniel is still faithful to God. He still has a godly reputation. And the cool thing is, even at 80 plus or 90 plus, he's still available to be used by God. Now, the reason why Belshazzar offered to make Daniel the third ruler over Babylon, well, it makes sense if we know that Nabonidus was the king and Belshazzar was his co-regent or co-king. So, you know, Nabonidus would have been first ruler. Belshazzar would have been second. So he's basically saying, you're the next guy right underneath me. I'm going to give you as much as I can, if you can interpret this dream, or excuse me, this the writing on this wall. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing for the to the king and make known to him the interpretation. You know, I don't know if you were in the presence of a king who says, I'm going to make you the third ruler of this whole nation. I'm going to give you nice clothes. I'm going to give you all this money. You're going to get all this power, all this influence. Uh, Daniel, he wasn't flattered by this young upstart king. Um, Not like Balaam. Remember Balaam? Balaam was a prophet who sought after power and sought after riches. That motivated him. But Daniel... He's not moved by this. He basically says to him, keep your money. I'm still going to interpret it in dream, but I don't need any of your wealth. Not to mention, Daniel probably at this point already knows what the handwriting on the wall says. And so it's like, yeah, it's, it's not worth it, you know. Um, you think about that. The world offers you and I the promise of riches. Offers you and I the promise of, of power and materialistic Luxury. And like Daniel, you and I need to see past what the world offers you and I and realize, man, that's temporary. It's fleeting. Keep your rewards. Keep keep the things that you, that you value, world. I'm seeking after God. Verse 18. O king... Now this is Daniel speaking. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty glory and honor and because of the majesty that he gave him all peoples nations and languages trembled and feared before him whomever he wished he executed whomever he wished he kept alive whomever he wished he set up and whomever he wished he put down O king your father not his literal father you know but Nebuchadnezzar, God had exalted Nebuchadnezzar. God had given him authority over the lives of the people that he ruled. God allowed him to have that authority over people. He could execute anyone that he wanted to. He could say, you know, you can stay alive. He he could let people live uh, that he wanted to. He could raise up people. He could put down people. God gave him that authority. The Bible says in Psalm 75, 7, God is the judge he puts down one and exalts another and God had exalted Nebuchadnezzar God gave him this tremendous amount of power to exercise freely verse 20 but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride he was disp- deposed from his throne from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him then he was driven from the sons of men his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over to whomever he chooses. God had given Nebuchadnezzar, man, all this influence, all this power, and yet Nebuchadnezzar sinned against God, and his heart was hardened by pride, And so God removed the throne from Nebuchadnezzar and humbled him until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the Lord God of Israel. And then God restored and transformed the king. Now, notice the boldness in Daniel here. He doesn't shrink back in the presence of this earthly king. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar's sin. He talks about God's judgment of sin. And he talks about God's restoration of Nebuchadnezzar once he acknowledged the Lord. That should be your and my message to a dying world around us, right? We need to mention man is sinful and that there's a price to pay for sin. God will judge sinful man. But the good news, of course, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God's provided a way for mankind to be restored once they humble themselves and acknowledge him in their lives. That's a message that we have. That's a message that Daniel gave to Belshazzar. Verse 22 But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Now, Belshazzar, like I said earlier, he was not Nebuchadnezzar's physical son. He's probably in the ancestral sense. Uh, It's possible some people think he might have been his grandson, that that Nebuchadnezzar might have been his grandfather. We don't really know exactly. But basically, Daniel doesn't mince words at this. He says, Belshazzar, you knew this it's it was it's history and remember in chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar had wrote this decree and he had passed it out throughout his old kingdom so everyone had heard Nebuchadnezzar's testimony but they had ignored or at least Belshazzar at least had ignored it verse 23 and you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your lords your wives and your concubines have drunk from from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you've not glorified. Man, Daniel just basically lays it out for Belshazzar. You know, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've dishonored God by drinking from the vessels of his house in licentiousness and in drunkenness. And you've worshipped idols. And the bottom line is, you've not glorified God. And God's the one who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways. I, I love that phrase. I mean, it's so, it's so uh, when you read it, it, it really brings it home. And God holds our breath in his hands. Each breath that you and I take, man, it's a gift from God. He holds our lives in our hands, He owns all our ways. You know, you and I, we can con- attempt to control our future. But ultimately, God's in control. Uh, last night, I was watching a, a movie and it got over, and, and I wasn't quite ready to go to bed yet, so I was like, channel. You know, you ever do the channel surfing, trying to see if there's something worth watching? Sometimes late at night there's some good movies on PBS. Well, there wasn't. Um, but there was this thing on Joan Rivers, and I'm not a real big Joan Rivers fan at all, but it was i just for a moment or two, I was just listening to it. And uh, she was talking about all those great comedi- or comedians and comedians and, uh, of the past, and uh, she was talking about George Burns. You know who George Burns was, the guy who smoked the cigar and always, you know, little guy with glasses? Um, he was performing as a comedian into his 90s. The guy was an old dude, and he was still funny. That's what Jones Rivers said. He was still funny as an old guy in his 90s. And then I don't know if you remember Phyllis Diller. Mm-hmm. She lived into her, I guess, into her 90s too, and she was still going out there doing stuff. And Joan Rivers made this comment. She goes, I'm going to outlive them all. And uh, who knows when that was recorded, but we know she didn't outlive them all. She died in her 80s, just recently, in fact. You know we can con- try to control our lives, but ultimately, God owns us. Our breath is in His hands. And so, during that time that our breath is in His hands, during that time that God's given you and I the gift of life, what are we to do? We're to glorify God. That's our purpose in life—to glorify God, plain and simple. Belshazzar, you've been given this authority like your father, like your father Nebuchadnezzar. You've been given Time you've been given life, and what have you done with it? You've squandered it, and you've not glorified God. Verse twenty-four. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, from God, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written: many, many tekel ufarson. This is the interpretation of each word: many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, in Aramaic, Aramaic, I should say, and in Hebrew, words are written only with consonants. There's no vowels in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic. The vowels need to be inferred. And uh, so this was probably written in either Aramaic or in Hebrew. And uh, the word many, which is said twice, it means numbered. And it also means a mina or a a weight or measurement equivalent to 50 shekels. And tekel is the word weighted or weighed, I should say. And it actually also means the weight of a shekel. And then eupharsin means to break into or to divide. And it's also a measurement. It's a half mina or a half a shekel. So basically, what he's, what the words are is numbered, weighed, and divided. And uh, this is from Chuck Missler. I'm not this smart. But you is an Aramaic conjunction, and farsen is the plural form of the word perez, which is broken or divided. And Chuck points this out. You know, I, I said that it's always, it's all counts, consonants and you have to infer the vowels. Um, by inferring a different vowel in Perez, the word becomes Perez, which happens to be the word for Persia. So it's just kind of interesting how God gave this cryptic message to, uh, uh, to uh, Belshazzar. And basically, the interpretation is God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Your number's up, basically. You've been weighed in the balance, and found wanting, your kingdom is going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. You know, and maybe you know this, but the Muslims, we've got, people say, well, Muslims are a peaceful religion and yet they're killing everybody. You try to leave Islam, you can be executed for it. Um, But people go, why are they killing all these people? And and, And they're doing all these things these jihads and all these things. Well, what they're doing is they believe that that's how they're going to get into paradise, by doing all these things for Allah. Uh, A Muslim cleric once said, you know, we do good deeds to hopefully outweigh our bad deeds on judgment day because Muslims believe in sin. They believe in the day of judgment. They believe in hell. And so what they're, they're doing these things, thinking that it's good things for Allah and that on judgment day, whatever sins that they've committed because they acknowledge that they sin, whatever sins that they committed, hopefully these other things on the scale is going to balance out and Allah will let them into paradise. That's what the Muslims believe. You know, you're in my life apart from Christ, if we were put on the same scale and measured against God's standard of holiness, all of us, what we'd be wanting, right? We are wanting. Without Christ, Interesting here, back in John chapter 8, Jesus is, of course, being confronted by people. They're trying to trap him. And in John chapter 8, it says, Now early in the morning he came again to the temple. And the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that shuts should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised, him up, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw, uh, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When Jesus was, when they confronted Jesus, they brought this woman who was caught in the very act. And of course, how did they catch her in the very act? It was a setup. They had arranged for it to happen so that they could catch her in the very act and bring her before Jesus. She was just a, a pawn, basically, in them wanting to trap Jesus. And they presented Jesus with this thing. You know, Moses' law says, if you, know, you have to stone someone who commits adultery. What are you going to do? And what did Jesus do? He stooped down and he started writing with his finger in the dirt. You ever wondered what he was writing? Now, some suggest that he was writing the list of sins that each of these men were guilty of. Lying, adultery, murder, hate. And as each one, you know, as these guys were looking at it, they were starting to get more and more convicted. Interesting, that was the finger of God writing down man's sins. And here in Daniel, the finger of God is writing down Belshazzar's sins. You know, for each one of us, there's a finger pointing at each one of us about our sins, right? Writing down our sins. But listen to what it says in Colossians 2. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with them, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That writing, our sins, the things that you and I have committed, man, it's been nailed to the cross by Jesus Christ. And that same hand that wrote down each man's sins there, man, that same hand was nailed on the cross for you and I. That's why, you know, Jesus Christ took the weight of our sin upon himself because in God's scales, apart from him, we don't measure up. We don't measure up to his standard of holiness. And so Jesus Christ took that weight off of us and put it on himself. He paid for our sin, rose from the dead, and gives us his righteousness. And so now when we stand on the scale, there's God's holiness and there's Christ's righteousness and we're justified because of what Christ has done, because of Jesus. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? But look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So this whole, this night, the Babylonians, you know, they're partying, they're getting drunk, there's all this noise, there's all this festivities going on. No one was realizing it, that the level of the Euphrates River was slowly going down. Why? Because the Medes and the Persians, they had gone upstream of the city of Babylon, and they diverted the river. And as the night's wearing, you know, it's dark, you can't see what's going on, the water's going lower and lower and lower And what happened was the invading armies of the Medes and the Persians, they walked through waist-deep water. They were able to get underneath these gates that were down in the water because the water level had gone down so low. They were able to enter into the city. They didn't even have to lift up a sword. They didn't have to shoot anybody, you know, with their arrows. (laughs) You know, they were able to just come in there without a fight and conquer the city of Babylon that very night. And it says Darius the Mede, who we know from history is also known as the General Gobrias. He was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans by the Persian emperor Cyrus. You know, at that point, can you imagine being an inhabitant in Babylon? You know, this whole time you're thinking, you're, you're told, hey, this is an impregnable city, nobody's going to get in here. And yet you see the threat all around you, but people are saying, oh, don't worry about it, you know, we'll, we'll make it through. And then in one night, your world is 100% over, uh, overturned. I mean, it, uh, upheaval in one night. A, one night, a new world empire is now in control. Things are never going to be the same. Those proud and pompous leaders were brought down low overnight. And in the middle of all this, is Daniel, this old man who once was used by God for, but then for 20 years wasn't used. And he remained faithful, he remained prepared, and he was available. And he went right through that empire and started living. He was alive during the reign of the Medes and the Persians for a few years. Of course, he was an old guy at this point. But you know, our world is in upheaval right now. And I honestly believe that things are drastically going to be changing soon too. And so for you and I, man, are we going to be like Daniel? Man, faithful, remaining faithful, remaining focused on the things uh, of heaven and not the things of this world? Because we can get distracted, right? We can, we can get focused on things that, just like Daniel, you know, they said, hey, you can have this gold chain, you know, purple clothes, I'll make you the third ruler. And he's like, Why? It's, it's going to be over tonight. <laughs> it's an empty, it's an empty promise. And the world promises you and I all these things, and it's an empty promise because things are going to be changing soon for you and I as well. And so what are we focused on in this life? Are we prepared? And you know, sometimes you might say, you know, God's not using me and things, are, I'm kind of in a lull right now. Hopefully you won't be in a lull for 20 years, but you know, what if you are? Are you going to remain ready and available for that moment when God says, okay, I'm, I'm putting you in this situation. I want you to glorify me in that situation. If you and I are focused on the things of this world, we're not going to be ready. We're, we're, we're going to be caught unaware or caught, you know, just unprepared. And my encouragement for each one of us today is to remain prepared, to remain faithful, and to be looking because we have the answers, guys. People look at what's going on in this world and it doesn't make sense to them. But you and I, we open up the Bible. We can we can look at the news with our Bibles open and we can go, look at that. It it God said it was going to happen and this is why. And so we have the answers for this world around us. So I pray that we're prepared and we're available and faithful like Daniel was. Why don't you stand up and let's pray.